This is the Virgin Radio Pridecast. Hello, I'm Matt Kane, and welcome to Sunday Roast on Virgin Radio Pride. Now, what's been going on this week? First of all, it was International Non-Binary Day. And I was interested to see that a new study in America found that one in four young people who identify as LGBTQ plus now identifies as non-binary. So what do we think? Could it be the future? I certainly think it's progressive and exciting. I love the idea of rejecting the traditional gender binary. And I should say that one of our very own presenters, Shivani Darve, who also appeared on this show last week, they've just been named as one of 28 non-binary people who are proud, visible and making the world a better place. So congratulations, Shivani. And if you want to find out more about that, there's an article up on the homepage of the Virgin Radio website. What else has been going on? Well, businessman Sir Richard Branson, I don't know if you noticed this, he made history by flying to the edges of space, paving the way for commercial space flights in the future. But not only that, he also took a rainbow ribbon with him. I don't know whether you noticed that. It was fastened to his space suit. The ribbon was made by charity The Orlando Ribbon Project and this aims to honour the 49 victims of the Pulse nightclub shooting. So far, it's made a brilliant over, over a million rainbow ribbons. And finally, the other big news story this week, and this is one that won't have passed anybody by, lockdown restrictions are set to end in England tomorrow. Now, obviously, there are variations around the different countries in the UK and even some of our cities, public transport systems, even supermarkets. But the main thing is we know which direction things are moving in now. And that means, amongst other things, that the queer scene is reawakening. I've talked on this show in the past about how the pandemic has led me to reappreciate the scene and learn its value all over again. Let's see if the same is true of other people. If it is, I'll see you all at the bar. For now, though, let's get on with the show. As usual, everyone's welcome to get involved. If you want to contact us on social media, we're on at Virgin Radio UK and I am on at Matt Cain Writer. You can also email us on pride at virginradio.co.uk and please do join the party. We're going to be joined by Laura Kay. She's a writer who's had articles published in Diva magazine and The Guardian. And earlier this year, she published her debut novel, The Split. It's set in Sheffield and it tells the story of Ali, who, after being brutally dumped by her girlfriend, turns her life around. I've read it and loved it and described it as the quote I gave for the cover, like meeting Marion Keyes and Dorno Porter in a cosy gay pub in Sheffield and getting drunk on Lambrini. Except it doesn't leave you with a hangover and you wake up feeling great. How's that? And we're going to be joined, Laura and I, by Benji Cousy. If you've ever been on TikTok, you'll know him from his catchphrase, Hi, Benji here. His unique direct-to-camera style has earned him just shy of 170,000 followers. 
He describes his TikTok page as a safe inclusion and well-being learning space. On it, he shares short videos on topics such as why inclusive representation matters and intersectionality, as well as hosting weekly live videos taking questions and comments from viewers. So he should be a dab hand at this. Maybe I'll be picking up some tips. Anyway, this is what we're going to be discussing. Firstly, are we as an LGBTQ plus community too quick to criticise each other? And are we too quick to criticise well-meaning cis or straight allies who might clumsily express their solidarity? Secondly, should religious freedom, in inverted commas, really be a get-out clause for homophobia or transphobia? Or should we close loopholes in the law? And lastly, with so many new options for education and learning opening up online, Benji's TikTok page being just one example, do LGBTQ plus people have a responsibility to educate others outside of the community? Or should it be down to those people to educate themselves? And finally, for a bit of light relief, let's talk about those restrictions easing. I'm going to be asking our panellists what they're most looking forward to in the newly liberated future. The Sunday Roast with Matt Cain. Virgin Radio Pride. Hello to my guests, Laura Kay and Benji Cousy. How are you guys today? Hi. Hi. Doing great. <laughs> it's great to have you both here. Listen, I'm going to be chatting to you both properly, find out what you're up to in between our debates. But we're going to get straight down to business with the first topic. Criticism in our community. Let's do this. So, here on Virgin Radio Pride, we describe ourselves as a station for the whole of the LGBTQ plus community. A lot of our programming is based around fostering a sense of that word, community. But not a day goes by that I don't see members of our community tearing into each other on social media. I can see from both of your faces and your nods that you've seen the same. I've also seen plenty of queer-on-queer attacks in real life. And I have to say, when I was editor-in-chief of Attitude magazine, this kind of thing used to really upset me. It used to upset me much more than homophobes having a go other, in my case, gay men having a go. It used to really get to me. So my question now is, as a community, are we too quick to criticise each other? And then after this, I want to ask, what about our allies? Are we too quick to pounce on well-meaning cis or straight allies who may clumsily express their solidarity? So, Benji, you're nodding. Tell me, have you had other gay, queer people having a go at you? Oh, yes, 100%. In fact, they're in my comments right now. Um, (laughs) Yeah, having a go. Um, To make light of it. I mean, obviously, it's not a nice thing. Um, It just, it makes me, it makes me sad. It makes me really sad um, to think that we can you know be like that to one another when we're meant to you know be all under the umbrella right and all happy kind of having shared experiences and it's sad and i think it to me where it comes from is that so many of us spend so long 
figuring out our identity and justifying our identity to ourselves and to the world, that almost we're always kind of on defense mode. And I think sometimes that doesn't create, make for kind of great inclusive, welcoming environments. Well, also, I'll just, I'm desperate to hear what Laura's got to say, but I'm just going to quickly um, add mm. that there is a long history of minority oppressed groups turning inwards on each other. Actually, oppressed groups of all different types. Laura, tell us about your experience of, have you had, um, I mentioned gay men can be very nasty to each other. As a lesbian, have you had other lesbians having a go? Um, I think there's there's definitely that same sort of like um, tension in the community. I would say that um, if I was a bisexual woman, I would probably have much worse stories because there is so much biphobia, especially from lesbians. Um, and um, I, I know a lot of bi women who have like a really terrible time from that. Um, I think personally, I, I, I wouldn't say um, I've had lesbians having a go. I've definitely felt um, before sort of uh, less than because of the way that I might present which is maybe more femme than other lesbians um, and I've got into huge arguments and debates about that and the way that you present yourself and choice and how the world sees you and how that relates to being a member of the community um, yeah I mean it, it makes me really sad it feels like incredibly sort of regressive to be talking about that kind of stuff i know it's awful that we have to talk about it on an inclusive radio station but it is such a big thing isn't it it's such a big thing we've all experienced it and get this the ultimate irony so when i shared this topic on social media to ask for listener comments guess what happened a load of people in my comments underneath fell out with each other Two big arguments. One of them it was quite nasty. Right, but I am going to read out some listener comments. So, first of all, we've got Ian on Facebook who says, definitely, this is a problem, on social media there's constant shaming, sometimes dressed up as banter. Camp shaming, femme shaming, fat shaming, penis size shaming, job shaming. It's as tedious as it is harmful. Ben on Facebook says, yes, I consistently find, in his case, some other gay men really nasty online as though you've affronted them not to think the same or do something they would in a way that others wouldn't be bothered by. I also see gay people who are most definitely bullies in my book, but they get away with it so easily because it's dressed up as camp. Finally, Daniel on Facebook says, interestingly, I'm guilty of this myself. This type of behaviour is always born of insecurity. And as most of our experiences growing up were a constant battleground for basic love and acceptance, the insecurity runs deep. Certainly in the past, I've found myself on the defensive very quickly. So, Benji, when somebody's having a go at you and it's really hurting emotionally... Even when you tell yourself that that's coming from a place of insecurity, is it still on? Is it still on? As in, am I still going to engage with that? Um, is it? Well, does it excuse it? Sorry, does it excuse it? Does okay, it make your on. hurt? Does it lessen your hurt at all? It it doesn't excuse it. No, because um, I am a human being, and my emotions and feelings are valid, um, as is my experience. Um, but it just it makes me empathise a bit more. And I'm always, I mean, I'm not a very confrontational person anyway, just naturally. But in especially when I'm talking to somebody who is within our community, I do try and be a bit softer um, in my approach, but still firm. So what about you, Laura? Do you think um, sometimes we have a go at people 
because of insecurity, because of internalised homophobia, do we see the things that we hate in ourselves? And when we see them in somebody else, we can sometimes lash out at them. I'm saying we, but members of our community. Yeah, that's absolutely. And I think if you perceive someone to be um, expressing themselves in a particular way and then you perceive their lives to be really exciting or successful or something that you don't have... um, that is when those voices come out and they think how how can you live like that so openly and so freely and then you know and maybe you're not what I imagined a lesbian to be or a gay man to be or whoever and you're managing this anyway and I've struggled so much and so why am I here and you're there but you're still you know dressing in a particular way or you're really you know camp or you're really you know whatever people I think there's a lot of things where if you like pass as straight then people you know find that incredibly difficult because they don't and then that's a whole other thing and I completely understand and I would come at that with a lot of empathy um I think there's a whole lot of reasons why people sort of lash out especially on social media where it's so easy to do it and um Benji, you're obviously one of your biggest areas of activity is online, is TikTok. So I've always had a policy of never criticising another LGBTQ plus person online, as I've always thought there were plenty of other people outside our community wanting to do it. I did break it once, actually, when Kevin Spacey came out and the way the things he said, um, I did criticise him. But what do you think of this policy? Because you nodded as I said it, but is it a good policy? Because if someone deserves taking down and says something abhorrent, should we be prepared to do it, even though they're also a member of our queer community. I think we need to remember that internalised oppression is still oppression. So if someone is acting out of internalised homophobia, they're still, you know, suffering from homophobia, which is an oppressive structure, um, you know, that oppresses us all, right? And so therefore we need to to consider that and keep that in mind in our approach. So something that I like to say is that there's a difference between calling out someone and calling in someone. And I think I'm more likely to call out someone outside of our community for saying something. Whilst if someone's in our community, then I, I'll call them in. So, I, in a, and that's in a more kind of sensitive way and being like, hey, I'm not having a go, but I'd like to have an, like an open discussion about what you said because I feel like it's wrong in X, Y, Z ways, if that makes sense. That does absolutely make sense, as it does to Laura, who's nodding. Tell me, um, what in, you know, before today, have you had a kind of policy um, for this kind of thing, whether to have a go at other people, other lesbians or LGBTQ plus people online. You know, because I mean, lots of us have had these internal discussions with ourselves. Um, what have been your what's been your policy in the past? Um, so I personally wouldn't ever. Well, I, I wouldn't say I've had a policy. I haven't ever called out other uh, lesbians online apart from um, transphobes. So that's like a huge thing on social media. And I would never sort of adopt a sort of like like cool approach or like come at that with any kind of particular like empathy or sympathy just because they're a lesbian I would you know treat them the same as other transphobes and obviously that's a huge problem at the moment but in terms of like anything else no I wouldn't and I actually love the call out call in thing I think that's really cool and I would definitely adopt that in the future oh no I also love that um 
One of the things, so, you know, we've, we constantly say on this show how brilliantly diverse our community is, and that is one of the things that makes it so incredible. But at the same time, it does introduce its own challenges. Um, so those people, um, those lesbians who are transphobic, are still, just by nature of their lesbian lesbianism, rather, part of our community. And... Um, what do we do with that? You know, and what do we do with it? So you've said on in in on social media, what do we do in real life? You know, I want to bring in another listener comment from Jeremy on Facebook who says, when is political disagreement characterised as criticism? Sometimes people position any alternative view to their own as personal criticism in order to avoid discussions and silence other people. Throw in identity politics, and I'm not surprised some people find saying anything is a minefield. Um... Right, so, um, different political ideas. What if somebody, you know, we were talking in a previous episode of this show, it's somebody who's also gay, but votes for a political party that actually is transphobic or lesbianphobic, or what do we do with different political um, points of view within our community? Or, as Laura has said, rampant transphobia. What do you think we do, Benji? Come on, give us the benefit of your wisdom that you're always sharing on TikTok. <laughs> I, I'm deliberately non-political. Well, you know, I feel like ex- you know, existing as a marginalised person is inherently political. But in terms of you know, parties and that sort of thing, I don't necessarily touch on those topics because the, yeah, I don't. I have enough str- um, struggle online. But what I would say, just from my perspective as Benji, um, I would say that we need to kind of. Uh, I'm not sure, you know, I'm going to be really honest and say that I'm it's actually hard, not sure. It's hard, isn't it? It's really yeah, hard. Because I am, I'm not going to say what my beliefs are, but let's just say that they don't align with who is currently in 10 Downing Street. Um, and so I, I, don't think, I don't think that's going to be controversial <laughs> to the listeners of our station. <laughs> but I find it so hard to not speak in a certain demeaning way about people whose views do align with the people in 10 Downing Street. Yeah, um, I agree. I think I've been guilty of being dismissive in this area in the past. And, you know, um, because a certain political party was very homophobic when I was growing up and brought in homophobic legislation, um, I have a problem with anybody voting for that party now. So there's a whole argument, do we have to forgive and forget? You know, do things move on? I don't think they've moved on fast enough with that particular party, to be honest. But if you think about America, where they, I think they have a bigger problem with, say, gay Republican voters, when that party under Donald Trump was bringing in anti-trans legislation. So what do we do as a diverse community that wants to just, you know, accept all these different identities and opinions, but in some ways they're pitters against each other. It's really difficult, isn't it, Laura? It's really difficult. I mean, I I don't have an answer. I just think that's so incredibly complicated. I think what we can do as a community is stand with each other and, you know, not vote against the interests of other community members. Um, And what if somebody isn't doing that? I mean, (laughs) <laughs> it's really hard, isn't it? I, I don't want to get like, yeah. I mean, I've, I've, I feel exactly the same as Benji. Like, I, I also my views don't align with who's in Downing Street, and I also find it incredibly difficult to not get into it about people that would agree with who's in Downing Street. Okay, right. So here's one for you that may be easier to answer, but is along the same lines. Certain um, gay male 
commentators. Obviously, this is my experience, so I pick up on them more. Um, and there was one that happened this week. They um, have views that don't align with the majority of our community, and they deliberately express those views in a provocative way to whip up... Um, it's adversity to whip up um, people, to make people turn against them. And this is the thing, almost. So there's one who's very active at the moment. There is one who I'm not going to name, just along with my policy of not turning on people in our community. I will mention the one who was very active a few years ago, which was Milo Yiannopoulos. Um, there's there's a handful of them, and um, they are very right-wing, and they um, are very provocative with those beliefs. So what do we do, Benji, as the online the most active online person amongst us. What do we do? I find these this so problematic. So I have a policy where I don't engage with, with outrage mongers. I don't. In general? In general. In general, on or offline. And I think you can definitely tell the difference between someone who has, you know, bigoted views that they are trying to express and people who are deliberately just trying to be controversial and to just whip up, um, you know... Uh, people's emotions and to offend people and ultimately outrage mongering it's not even necessarily even about the views it's about control and it's about you know being infamous and i think when we engage with those people we are, we are giving them what they want and the best thing that we can do so how i approach it on, on my page is that if i see a video that of someone outrage mongering and i get hot and i want to say something i go on my page and i do a video that's against what they're saying, but I don't address them. I don't even refer to them. I just use my platform to put some good out into the world and I don't, you know, fulfill their agenda. I, I agree with you about not naming them. I think um, that's a really important thing, not tagging them, not naming them. What I would love to ask my panel about now is allies. We've all seen examples of very well-meaning allies um, getting the expression wrong, being a bit clumsy and people turning on them and um, pouncing and taking them down. So um, one so one example, actually, very recently, there was a Radio 1 DJ who unwittingly misgendered Sam Smith when they were talking about them coming out as non-binary, actually last year. Um, and they were really attacked for this online. Do you think this is fair? Obviously, it depends on... Um, Benji's looking at me with slightly startled expression. Obviously, it depends on the um, case. Mm. But have you noticed that... Do you think we are sometimes too quick to criticise allies who are trying to be... to express their solidarity? I So my eyes were because I would never, ever, ever want anyone to think that I am defending someone who has misgendered somebody else because... Um, you know, the impact of invalidating someone's identity is is huge. But what if that person hadn't heard the news story that week? Or who knows what was going on in this DJ's life, whether she'd just been bereaved or she was going through a divorce and um, she'd just not been... Um, not being paying attention to the news and her producer briefed her badly. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's difficult. I know I totally take your point, mm -hmm. but it can be so complicated. Oh, 100%. And I think we need to be differentiate between intent and impact. And a lot of things that we, we say and do that negatively affect others come from, their the negative effects come from an impact and we didn't actually intend to do so. And so when we are criticizing others, we need to you know try and figure out, okay, what was the intent? 
did that person misgender um someone you know because they don't they don't they're trying to invalidate their identity or did they just forget or there was a mistake or there was an error we need to be understanding in, in that aspect what do you think laura you, i can tell it looks like you agree i completely agree i think um all of my friends who use they them pronouns would never in a million years if someone slipped up in the moment and then corrected themselves immediately take offense to that ever uh, especially if you know you apologize or you know when people are getting used to it it takes some time um but as someone um who would like to consider myself an ally and i hope that other people consider me an ally um i expect to be corrected so and like all that that is part of being an ally you can't you can't be an ally without being corrected and taking that on and learning from it so two sides really and i i think um the queer community do a lot of accepting mistakes and you know that kind of thing and so at some point it's it's fair to get angry about something like that um all right i want to put this comment from a listener to you laura simon on facebook says in my opinion deluded liberal allies do as much harm for our cause if not more than trans or homophobes it is not the job of queers to pacify placate and pander to misguided allies just as it isn't the job of black people to do the same to whites what do you think about that laura Oh. Strong words. They're very strong words. <laughs> Gosh, I, I mean, I, I like as I say, like I, I mean, it isn't down to people to say that they are an ally. You can't call yourself an ally. Uh, someone else can call you an ally, and that's a privilege to be in that position. Um, but being a true ally is doing the work. So if you do the work and take, you know, corrections, and listen then you're putting yourself in a position where you can support and truly stand with the community. But you, you can't say, um, oh, don't criticise me, I'm an ally. I'm doing good work for you. That's not how it works. OK, what do you think, Benji? Is self-identification or self-declaration as an ally enough or do they need to, as Laura says, do the work? Oh, 100%. You need to do the work um, and, and regularly as well. You, you need to regularly be learning and, and accepting, you know, criticism and, and building on, on how you help or support whichever community you're looking to be an ally towards. Um, ally, being an ally is a verb. It's, a do, it's something you do. It's not something you kind of label yourself. All right, um, I completely agree. But mm. we've got another listener comment here from Chris on Facebook. As a teacher by profession and an ally, I've, although you may disagree with his self-identification as an ally, as a teacher and ally, I feel strongly that people have to have some leeway to unintentionally get it wrong without fear of fury or summary cancellation. That is how we educate. That is how we educate pupils, gently guiding them to a more mature and sensitive understanding if they show ignorance or un conscious prejudice regarding LGBTQ plus people or issues. A strident response, it seems to me, risks pushing people in the other direction. It certainly doesn't build bridges or encourage tolerance. What do you think about that? You're rolling your eyes. Come on, express your opinion. Because we shouldn't be putting the the pressure of, you know, or responsibility of people um, in the world who don't accept our, our, our identity or don't validate our identities, the pressure of them, you know, recognising their wrongs on the 
oppressed group. Does that make sense? And that whole thing of, you know, we need to act in it in a certain way in order to bring them closer, I think is very problematic. That being said, I do kind of agree with the sentiment of, you know, we need to be kind of kind but firm in how we approach these issues. So to work by that, I mean, you know, stand by what you believe in and what you believe to be true, but also don't be unnecessarily aggressive um, with how you, you do that, is what I would say. Okay, fantastic. I should say at this point, we are a bit later in the show and our third topic going to be talking about whether it's our responsibility as LGBTQ plus people to educate um, people who don't, people outside our community. But for now, Laura, so I want to put to you, we've all heard straight people who identify as allies ask us questions they don't realise are based on stereotypes. You don't seem gay, I'm sure you've heard, you don't seem like a lesbian from what you said earlier. Who's the man and who's the woman? How do lesbians have sex? Or, uh, you know, I used to get when I was single, I must fix you up with this other gay person I know. Or just... You can be my gay friend, or I love gays. Um, have you ever been offended by anything like this? Which, in the ally, in the self-identifying ally's mind, is um, very much coming from a positive place, but can be offensive. Have you ever been offended by this kind of thing? Um, I've not been offended. I've got tired of it. I would never. I think when I was younger and like newly out and not used to talking about myself um, I would allow people to ask me those questions and maybe laugh at them or even attempt to answer them or try to explain to them and now I just wouldn't even humour someone that asked me a question like that I can't imagine someone asking me a question like that anymore Um, I think they'd be mad to Um, I think a recent thing that maybe as I, you know, I'm like um, in my 30s now is people thinking they can ask if I'm going to have children and then if I am going to have children how um and I get asked that all the time by people that don't know me very well at all well and it's interesting some trans friends of mine have said that um so-called allies in inverted commas ask them very intimate questions about their genitals straight away and um think that that's fine and showing an interest and trying to educate themselves with no sense of um what the trans person may find triggering or just emotionally upsetting or they just don't want to discuss. Yeah. What do you... Come on, Benji, you're, um, you're nodding. <laughs> yes, because I get so, so angry about that. Um, so people, it's privilege to assume that you can ask such invasive questions and have them answered because someone is living a life that you perceive to be different or outside of the norm. Just because someone looks or lives their life different to you doesn't mean you get to grill them about it or they have to explain themselves to you. And that's just common decency and respect. That is kind of 101 of allyship. All right. What's the uh, what's the worst thing a so-called ally has ever said to you? The the worst the worst thing. There's so many are flying through my mind. I would say that um, people ask me a lot about to tell them stories about how I've been racially abused or racially harassed or any racist attacks that I've received, and. I just, you know, as I say, everyone's wince in this room, but people feel so open to uh, to ask me that, um, or, or like any homophobic attacks that I've I've experienced, or, and I think, I think from their perspective, they're just trying to learn more about my experience. 
but then they need to realize that what you're asking me is really to, to spell out you know my trauma to you just for your interest um uh, just while you were saying that, it struck me. So you were talking about people outside the community. Do you find that people within the LGBTQ plus community assume an extra bond or kinship because they see a parallel between the oppression we've all gone through as people, members of our community, queer people, and what you must have gone through as a black person? Yes, 100%, definitely. And... I think it comes from a lack of acknowledgement of intersectionality. We are not all the same and we all, just because you are part of one marginalised group doesn't mean that you totally understand the experience of another marginalised group. So I just, I am, you know, I am part of, I'm a black person and I'm also a queer person, but I am a cis man. And so therefore in conversations regarding, you know, the experiences of women, I am therefore an ally, I guess, or I hold an allyship position in that conversation. And so therefore I need to act accordingly. And I think people do overlook those boundaries um, within our community too much. Okay, right. So Laura, one of our listeners, I can't remember who it was. I read a comment earlier. He said, we sh- it's not our duty to pander to um, straight cis people. But... Um, However frustrating it may be for the three of us in this conversation, don't we need the goodwill and solidarity of mainstream society if we're going to progress as a community? And don't we need, therefore, to engage with them? Um, We do. Um, I think we do have it. I think the majority of people, uh, there is that goodwill. But I still don't think that it's our responsibility to behave in a certain way to get a group of people to be nice to us and accept us and give us like you know basic respect so but i i actually think you know that cancel culture isn't real that there there is this myth that if you misgender someone or say something wrong about the community that you will get it will blow up and you'll never be able to show your face again and that's just not true i think almost everyone comes at it with, from a place of compassion so and if you genuinely have made a mistake and you apologize and you own up and you learn like our community is so fantastic at bringing people back in so actually you're disagreeing with um the topic that we brought up that we can be too quick to i i, I look we can all give examples of when we've been too quick to pounce on an ally of a so-called ally but actually what you're saying is in general we can be very forgiving and I think that's a I think that's a good thing. Yeah. Forgiving, yeah, totally. I think if it's fine to be quick to pounce if you accept an apology and that people can grow. Also, can I just say, right, so Benji, you're the youngest person in this discussion. I am by some distance the oldest. Um all of these things we were saying when allies say things to us and, you know, express things clumsily or say things something they don't realise is actually prejudice. Um even so, can I just put to you, it's a big improvement on the kind of things that I heard almost universally when I was growing up in the 80s. Um, when hearing somebody say, I love gays, you can be my gay friend, it would have been like, you know, on just like the, the most you could ever hope for. <laughs> yeah. So do you think we need to acknowledge that, Benji? Oh, yeah, no, we definitely do. And to, to if if 
you don't mind me doing so to call back a conversation we had kind of off the mic where I I mentioned that I prefer to be called a queer person and and because it's under divisive and you rightly so it was like actually it can be very divisive you know across age um, and I was like some I'll just clarify for our listeners some yeah. older people had it used as the, against them as a term of abuse and haven't quite got over that. Yeah, no, a hundred percent, and and so I do, I do think that we do kind of do need to be sensitive in, in that aspect as well. And you mentioned that I'm the youngest person here. That's true, but on TikTok, my my audience are all you know between the ages of like sixteen and like early twenties. So I'm actually a lot older than the people I'm speaking to, and I've been called out a few times. Um, yeah, about things that I've said that um, they're like, oh no, we don't say that anymore. Oh no, you, you can't say that. And I'm like, oh, well, it was fine when I was when I was young. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm only 26. So I say that to say that you know that's a lesson that we all need to learn. That you know we, this conversation is always going, and we, we can't stay stagnant. Right. So needing to wrap up and hoping that we can end on a positive note. Um, do we just all need to be open to learning those lessons? Do you think, Laura? You know, what's what's the best way for us as our, as a community to learn to be nicer to each other you know there's this whole social media movement to hashtag be kind well it's not just on social media in real life too what's the best way for us to learn to be kinder to each other i think it's just about listening to each other and what we need from each other as a community how you can best stand up for the more marginalized people in our community and what that requires in terms of you know you may think that you making a statement is standing up for people and when people say to you actually that's really harmful and this is why is not saying right well I was trying to do the right thing and now you can forget it is saying thank you for telling me correcting yourself and then next time you can be a better ally um yeah Great. I love it. That was positive. You're listening to the Virgin Radio Pridecast. I am now going to be talking to Laura Kay, not about our debates, but about what you're up to professionally. Let's talk, first of all, about your book, The Split. As you know, I loved it. I've already raved about it on the show earlier. You've said in the past that one of your motivations for writing it was to normalise same-sex relationships in commercial fiction for adults or the mainstream narrative arts in general. Yeah, I was excited to write it because I hadn't read what I wanted to read in commercial fiction. Like, I love rom-coms and I, up until very recently, there have been a couple in the past few years, I hadn't read anything that I really related to and so I just wrote what I wanted to read which is you know fun and light and you know there's lesbians in it and there's gay men in it and the whole world is really gay as one person once said to me (laughs) and um yeah, it's a total joy. But was there, even though it was a joy to write and it is a joy to read, was there a part of you that resented having to create that space for yourself because it wasn't already occupied? Um, I never resented it because it was such a pleasure to do it. Um, but it made me sad. I mean, it made me sad for me that when I was growing up, I never had that representation and I would have loved that. I was such a reader. Um, I devoured absolutely everything with any slight bit of gayness in it and it would have been so wonderful to have more choice and it would have helped me a lot Um, but I just it's really cool to be able to do that now for other younger readers and do you think with the book being so successful you've proven your point 
Uh, I hope so, <laughs> for my publishers listening. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there is a readership, you know. I, um, I've said this recently, I think, but people want good stories and it doesn't matter to readers, or most readers anyway, um, who the protagonists are and who they are in love with and where that takes them. If, if the story is good and it's told well, people will read it. I have to say as well, I've found as a novelist that uh, often straight readers love LGBTQ plus themed stories or characters because the journeys that they go through and, were, you know, reacting against expectations from society, traditional gender norms, it gives them the idea that they could live a bit more freely. And it kind of releases them from expectations. Do you do you agree with that? Yeah, I totally agree. Like it's it's you when you're reading about a queer life, you are reading a life that has uh, that is outside of what society's normal expectations. And so, queer people are then able. A really wonderful thing is that queer people are able to build their own life the way that they want to live it. And even if that is in a really small way. Um, you know, like in my, there's nothing particularly radical in my novel, but um, the protagonist's life is is different because of her sexuality and and the way that she makes choices, and she isn't necessarily focused on whether she's going to have a baby next or whether she's going to get married, and it's just a slightly different path. And I think it's quite liberating. All right. So as well as the um, novel, you're also a very successful journalist. You've written for The Guardian, Diva, about a huge range of subjects. Is there still a sense, do you think, that LGBTQ plus writers are often limited or expected to write about only about the issues that affect our community or we're meant to kind of fly the flag? Yeah. I, and I think this is a difficult one because I love writing about LGBTQ TQ stuff like it makes me really happy and when I'm pitching that's what I'm pitching and when I'm commissioned that's normally what it's about but that's probably because I've expressed an interest um so yeah I mean I, but it, it can be a problem to be pigeonholed like I I am interested in other things I can do other things I'm more than just a lesbian um so I can see how that might be frustrating for some people. I actually think I've messed that one up now because I was always an arts TV producer and then arts journalist and that was my big thing. That was who I was. And I loved writing LGBTQ plus journalism and did so much of it that it's kind of overwhelmed everything else. I think that's all I could do. I actually don't think any editors would come to me um, asking for art stuff now. They just think, Matt Kane, gay, 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 <laughs> when Laura Kane, lesbian. Yeah. I mean, I'm not that mad at it, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, I mean, the good thing is now there is actually an appetite for that kind of journalism as well as those fictional stories. So we can have a career doing it. Um, Sorry, it's not about me, it's about you. Let's go back to the novels. Tell me about, I see from your social media, you're writing a second one. I am, yes. Um, so it's out in May next year um, and it's super queer. Um, everyone basically is queer. I think there is some straight representation. There are like two straight <laughs> characters, so that's important to mention. Um, and it is set in Brighton and there is travel and it involves a therapist and a dysfunctional family. Um, so more of the same stuff, really. I love it already. Thank you. Um, 
Before the novels and the journalism, you studied history. You have a master's degree in history from the University of Sheffield. Tell us about your take on LGBTQ plus history and how you think, what do you think is the best way or some of the best ways to kind of increase mainstream society's knowledge of LGBTQ plus history? Getting it on the curriculum. I didn't learn any LGBTQ plus history at school at all. I didn't learn any on my university course either. Um, And I don't think it was an option to. It wasn't that I opted out. uh, I just can't recall any any option to ever ever learn about that. Um, It wasn't until I got into my master's year and I was writing... Um, a different dissertation I got to choose it that I even got to focus on that um, I think just getting anything out into the mainstream and like I know there's like history shows for kids and stuff like that and like mm-hmm. getting it on TV you know like I think there's still a problem where people um, equate queer history our like gender history with sex and it's just two separate things entirely and I think if we can start to pick that apart you know and get it in like kids learning from a younger age well another problem is um lack of evidence because most queer people at most points in history had to do everything they could to destroy all evidence um of same-sex activity and that basically has given historians carte blanche to erase us from the record to talk about um lesbian couples as her close friend that she lived with oh but there's no proof they were in a relationship and all these things um and also what often happens is that when um people die if there is any evidence their family and people looking after the legacy destroy it and um it can be really difficult and sorry this is a very long-winded way of bringing us on to do you think fiction can fill in the gaps left in the historical record that's a very interesting question um i uh no probably not but i think it can be a really important tool and i think that a lot of people do a lot of their learning from fiction i certainly do learn loads from fiction and uh i think it can be very important but it i'm not sure that we can fill the gap left i mean history has always been told by men and it's always been told by white men specifically and so there are so many people that are left out of history so i guess what we can do is start making sure that we a are reading things critically and b making sure that now things are recorded from a multitude of perspectives fantastic but your second novel like your first is going to have a contemporary setting yes it is contemporary no pandemic <laughs> <laughs> good to hear yes. it <laughs> the sunday roast with matt kane virgin radio pride my brilliant panel laura Kay and benji Cousy are still here and now we're going to be talking about religious freedom So, you might remember back in 2019, there was a whole row in Birmingham between a primary school that wanted to teach its pupils about LGBTQ plus relationships, actually just following government guidelines on this issue, and a group of parents who wanted the choice to remove their children from these lessons. Before that, you might remember the story of the bakery in Belfast run by evangelical Christians who refused to bake a cake with the words support 
gay marriage on it. That ended up in the courts. Actually, as I'm as I'm thinking about this, there were a couple of cases with B and Bs as well, refusing where the owners refused to have gay couples staying there. Anyway, all of these things are examples of the debate between religious freedoms and the rights of LGBTQ plus people in action. So, my question is, if we have certain rights in this country, why should people be able to deny them in the name of religious freedom? I'm delighted to be joined by Jane Ozan. She's an evangelical Christian who's also gay and works to improve inclusion for LGBTQ plus people within the church. She secured a public apology from the Archbishop of Canterbury for the way that we've been treated by the Anglican Church and she caused a storm when she was a government advisor on equality but quit in the row over conversion therapy. Jane, thank you for joining us. Oh, it's a real pleasure, Matt. Thanks for having me on. Now, I've got to ask, first up, as a Christian and a gay woman, how do you feel about homophobia within the church? Oh, well, actually, the real honesty, it really saddens me. I mean, it sickens me too, but it saddens me because people who, frankly, are on the whole good people who have a deep faith, who believe in the power of love to change people, seem so blinded to the prejudice that they have. And frankly years of what I think is ill-informed and wrong teaching but the harm it does is just untold and so that's what deeply angers me too but I think the overarching feeling is just deep sadness you know many of my uh, former friends people who I saw as some of my closest friends who are deeply homophobic are good people they're just completely and utterly misguided I think with a legalistic view on life Oh, that's interesting. Right, so you're saying sadness, which I totally get. Um, Sometimes with me, it's anger, and I want to put something to you. So if someone says something that discriminates against queer people or is disrespectful of queer people or even so disrespectful it represents a hate crime, why should citing their religious belief get them off the hook? Well, I'm not sure it should get them off the hook. I, I, you know, I'm with you that there is a justice issue here and there are laws in this land that prevent hate crimes, that that does not exclude religion. They don't get, a, you know, a get past go free card or whatever the equivalent of monopoly used to be, that they have to be um, fully responsible for the harm that they often inflict, often knowingly. I mean, let's be honest, there is... I think there being so many reports, um, testimonies, programs, documentaries now outlining the harm that this um, hate uh, leveled at the LGBT community, often in the name of religion does, that they, they, can't, they can't ignore the impact that they have. And one of the things that really angers me, so I'm going to go from sadness to anger, is Welcome to my welcome to my emotional world, Jane. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was trying to be generous. You know, I think there are people who who are perhaps slightly ignorant on this, but leaders who I often find myself head to head with in programs like this, who are confronted constantly with the harm that they do, and yet choose to sidestep that, ignore that, not uh, acknowledge it at all, and carry on metering out. 
views that cause deep psychological harm and trauma, often to younger LGBT people. Okay, right. I'm going to open this up to the panel in just a sec. I just want to ask you first, when you're talking about harm, one of the ways that um, faith groups can do the most harm is through conversion therapy. Obviously, you know a lot about this. I said in the intro that you quit your role as a government advisor because um, the Prime Minister was reassuring faith-based groups that um, they would still be able to practice their religious beliefs and you know as you found out most um conversion therapy is carried out in the name of religious groups in the name of religious beliefs in in the uk particularly um the vast majority of conversion therapy today is done in religious or indeed cultural settings and what the UN themselves have been very clear about, indeed, the UN special special rapporteur on freedom of religion or belief, you know, the guy whose job is to protect freedom of religion or belief, he's come out very clearly stating that citing religion is not a defence uh, to, to mitigate against conversion therapy, that actually we do need to legislate in this area. And, you, you know, international law is quite clear on this too. You can have freedom to think whatever you like that's enshrined in law but how you practice that well that is subject to 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 constraints when you harm someone you know we don't eat children anymore we don't burn people you know there are limits especially when it causes um as we call torture uh, significant harm which this does so okay Brilliant. Thank you very much for that. Right, I want to bring in the panel. Benji, what is your take on the conflict between religious belief, when it is a conflict, religious belief and our freedoms and human rights as LGBTQ plus people? I I concur. I I do believe that people have a right to believe whatever they would like to to believe. And as someone who um, my ethnicity is Ghanaian, and it's a very um, religious country, either you're a Christian or you're a Muslim. Um, and so I come from that background and I just, you know, religion is, is very it's very cultural, you know, and I wouldn't want to tell anybody that they're not allowed to believe, you know, what they would like to believe. But I can only allow that to the extent where it's not, you know, harming others, right? And so that's the difference for me. But interestingly, actually, you've just brought up a really important point. I was going to say, surely there's a difference between something you choose to believe and something more fundamental, something that's to do with human nature. But actually what you're saying is religion is sometimes about culture and identity and belonging. Yeah, 100%, definitely. And I think sometimes people who exist outside of that sphere who maybe haven't been raised religiously or you know don't have any any belief or have you know recounted their belief can be sometimes a bit insensitive um because it's not just you know going to church you know every sunday or going to your place of worship like is a way of life for people and i think we do need to be sensitive to that as long as they're not harming others and what's your take on the subject laura are you from a religious background so no i'm not and i have completely been guilty of exactly what you just said. I've been perhaps not as sensitive as I could have been because I don't have that level of understanding of what it's like. Like, I wasn't christened. I I just never really went to church apart from with school, like that kind of thing, until I met um, my then partner, now wife, who was brought up in an incredibly religious um, 
background, like super um, evangelical church, in fact. And um, sort of saw it through her eyes and through her family and the difficulties that she'd had and those struggles. Um, It really opened my eyes because I think I had been quite clear in my beliefs before, like, this is right and this is wrong and you're being insensitive and I'm absolutely correct. And there's such a grey area, there's so much more to it than that. Because it is, Jane, such a grey area, um, do you think, I mean, you've mentioned the UN's position on it, does there need to be some kind of internationally agreed hierarchy of freedoms? Um, I was reading that, um, you know, so that if they come into conflict, we can work out what to do. I was reading that um, um, Canada's top court in 2018 ruled in favour of denying accreditation to a Christian law school that bans students from having gay sex. And this set an, an important legal precedent in Canada, protecting LGBTQ plus students from discrimination trumped religious freedom, it found. Do you think there needs to be, or would it be too black and white for somebody like me to say that? Well, I understand why you say that. And um, there is a move amongst some people to want to sort of have a hierarchy. But actually, the whole point of human rights law is that it's taken as a group of rights. You need to read them in the round. And frankly, abuses occur when you try and use power, when you try and use one over the other. But the values at the heart of them are what really matter. So the values we're talking about here is the sanctity of life, the importance of not harming people, the ability to have freedom that doesn't denigrate the freedom of someone else in a way that causes them harm. And, you know, we have within, I'm not an international human rights lawyer, I I need to say that up front, but I've obviously had to look at this in some depth. We rightly have protected characteristics in in, um, uh, in international law, such as LGBT people. And when you are doing something that undermines their very right to life, or indeed denigrates them and causes them such harm that will often end in them taking their lives, well, that is sacrosanct. That is a value that, tr- I don't want to use the word trumps, but needs to be centre stage. And all of us who have faith, you know, ultimately, I think, believe in the sanctity of life. Uh, one of the projects I, I did last year was to launch the Global Interfaith Commission on LGBT Lives that brought together really senior religious leaders around the world who wanted to celebrate the LGBT community, but started with apologising for the harm that religion had caused. But the core to all that, the key to getting on board, was recognising the sanctity of life. Okay, fantastic. Right, I want to put to you, Benji, some comments we've had in from our listeners. So, Simon on Facebook says, so it's interesting because we're we're doing this, and actually, even though I said my emotion is sometimes anger in this situation, there's not much anger in the room or in the Zoom with Jane, but once once you put this question on social media, there is you know, quite an outpouring. Simon on Facebook, I don't understand how discrimination can be illegal and there being a get-out card. You can't get out of a theft or robbery charge because you're a devout Robin Hood priest. Having an opinion is not illegal, but the way one expresses it and or acts upon it could well be. Willow on Instagram says... Thoughts, beliefs, philosophies are intrinsic to our existence, but not when they damage, discriminate or marginalise any other member of society. And Grant on Twitter says, your belief is a belief. My existence is a reality. What do you say to that, Benji? Because you have a you have 
a greater depth of understanding of the crossover between religious belief and cultural background and identity? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's hard because th those comments, I, I can't sit here and say that I disagree. I don't disagree, actually. I kind of agree with what they're saying and the emotions behind what they're saying. But I go back to what I said earlier. I think we just need to be a bit more sensitive, you know, to everybody involved, all parties involved, and, and realise, you know, we talk a lot when we talk about, you know, inclusion and valuing marginalised identities. We do talk about kind of looking through different people's like worldviews and their, their eyes, right, and standing in their shoes. And so it works both ways. We need to look, stand in the shoes of people who are religious and think about why they do hold the beliefs that they do. Okay, right. So that's brilliant. We should be more sensitive to them. And Laura said the same thing in her first comment mm. on this topic. But I want to put something to you, Laura. So as LGBTQ plus people, what about, how do we feel when religious people aren't sensitive to us? Um, do you feel that sometimes we're not really able to defend ourselves against attacks from religious people because we're frightened of being accused of Islamophobia or prejudice against people from any religion? Do you think that becomes um, difficult? This is another example of this where this conflict between the two can be tricky to negotiate. Yeah, I mean, it's so complicated. I mean, I think I can only speak for myself and personally, no, I don't think that I would ever, you know, censor myself because I was worried about what somebody was going to think. You know, if I think someone's being homophobic, I'll say something. I'm not frightened of that. And I think um, there are so many people for whom there's a crossover between their religion, their culture, their sexuality, their gender, and it's 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 far more complicated than it just being an LGBT person and a religious person and it being two heads butting. I think it's just so much more than that. Okay, right. Jane, I want to put something to you, if you don't mind. Another comment that we had on social media from a listener, Rachel on Twitter. She showed a picture of a billboard and it said, um, she didn't know who took the picture of the billboard, but it sums up her sentiment. Religion, it says, is like a male private part, shall we say, at this time of the day on a Sunday. It's okay to have one. It's okay to be proud of it. However, do not pull it out in public. Do not like, write laws with it. Do not think with it. Do you think that this kind of attitude, Jane, much as it's funny and, you know, the billboard is snappy and, you know, it catches on, do you think it really dismisses and is really insensitive to the beliefs of people of faith? It is pretty dis disrespectful. And I think, for me, the whole point is how do we build a society that is more accepting tolerant and progressive and that requires us to be able to talk to each other and just lobbing rocks at each other which sadly that does doesn't build for a healthy society and you know that's why i started by saying i feel sad rather than anger because of course i'm anger angry but and, and pain comes out of anger doesn't it or anger, pain manifests as anger but the important thing is how do i help people change and that requires that I respect uh, as much as I can them. I, I treat them with um, uh, as I would like to be treated myself. I try and have as much love as I can towards them. And I show by my example that what their beliefs are 
are wrong. But if I show by my example that they've got good cause for their beliefs, then they're just going to get even more entrenched. So I think we have to win the argument. And by doing that, we have to take the higher ground, show ourselves to be more magnanimous, patient, you know, and trying to forgive, because that's what a lot of us is. I've been deeply hurt by religious people, but my faith is absolutely foundational to me. And it's that love that allows me, if you like, to, to try and overcome all that anger and pain and hate and actually work with people so that they see, I hope, a, a more a deeper path in their faith and, 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 and towards LGBT people. And actually, I'm just going to say, we were asking our panellists earlier about their religious backgrounds. So I was brought up Roman Catholic, very strict Roman Catholic. And that's part of the reason I became obsessed with Madonna, that she was very much rejecting the teachings of the Catholic Church that she saw as oppressive. And that struck a chord with me growing up as a gay man in the Catholic Church. But actually, what I'd like to say, picking up on something that Laura said earlier, um, all right, I was forced to listen to bigotry and prejudice. So what I did was I stepped away and I shut it all out. But Jane, do you think I did the wrong thing? Should Could I still benefit from engagement with faith groups and what they have to offer and can teach me? Well, I think you probably took the path you needed to at the time, but I think engaging with faith groups um, is, 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 is integral, certainly to where I'm coming from. I think we all have a spiritual dimension, and one of the things that's really saddened me uh, with the LGBT community is because they have been rejected often by friends and family who are religious, they've therefore rejected faith, whereas I think that's a really key part to our identity for me it's where i get so much support and sucker from others will think that's nuts but there we go that's what makes me me but i think ultimately if we want to, as an lgbt community to have a safer um, more prosperous future around the world we have to engage with faith communities and uh, as you may or may not know I, I met the pope and talked to him about conversion therapy and he's just put out a statement believe it or not where he's condemning conversion therapy well that only comes from engaging you know? Woo! At a girl, I love it. I love it. <laughs> right, I want to ask Laura, do you think, um, you know, we're talking about this, um, how we view religious people, and it is easy to just blanket um, dismiss them, as you and I have both said we have done in the past. But what's interesting to me is there's a tendency um, to dismiss homophobes with faith as religious fundamentalists and to act as if they're just some crackpot minority. Do you think this is a bit disingenuous and doesn't help us really tackle the problem? Are all these people fundamentalists? I mean, no, I don't think that helps us tackle the problem. It's it's not, um, in my experience, it's not a case of people being crackpot or fundamentalists or whatever. It's um, This is just people's day-to-day -day beliefs these these aren't people that are really stringent in other ways it's just that those are the beliefs that they've been, been brought up with culturally they may not know any lgbtq plus people um and um i think to dismiss it as a small um maybe loud slightly odd mi minority is is completely wrong it's actually a really widespread issue um and it's about talking to um those people sort of one-on-one -on -one. I mean I say that but like you know and that's whether you want to take that on as an LGBTQ plus person that's not necessarily our responsibility I know we're going to talk about that 
at some point. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, it's very complicated, but I don't think it helps anyone to dismiss entire groups of people like that. I completely agree. Benji's also shaking his head. But Benji, can I ask you, so you've talked about your background in Ghana. Um, are there still people close to you in your life, whether family or friends, who have religious belief that tells them who you are is wrong? And if so, how have you negotiated this difficult challenge? And how have you, how is, what impact has it made on you emotionally? Um, the answer is yes, I definitely do. Um, in terms of the impact this has on me, it's had on me emotionally. I mean, not a great one. Um, but I, what I would say is that how I look at it is that, you know, most of us in this world have intersectional identities. So we all have, you know, different identities. So, you know, the LGBTQIA plus community is not a homogenous one, you know. I am black and also part of the community. You know, you could identify as a woman and also be part of the community. And I think when we have an us and them approach, um, we then start to kind of, you know, marginalise people within our community. Because, you know, as we all know in this room, there are people who are part of the community who are religious. And so therefore, we need to kind of look at the, the topic with that nuanced understanding to make sure that we are not ourselves marginalising people within um our community and how we um, talk about these topics and issues. Right, so on the subject of us and them, as, as you put it, Gerald on Facebook, one of our listeners says, religions are essentially patriarchal systems that can't deal with any sense of otherness. They're systems of control and the notion of queerness will always represent a threat to them. When I become Prime Minister, the first thing I'll do is to ban them all. Every last one. So, Jane, um, I'm sure you're used to hearing this kind of thing, but what I'd love to know is, from you, do religious freedoms and our rights as LGBTQ plus people always have to be in conflict? No, not at all. And indeed, you know, there are plenty of religious people who will um, stand up and want to defend the LGBT community to the hilt. And indeed, my own faith, that's what motivates me, is my, my faith that wants to, to ensure that we live in a just and loving world. So, no, they should, in a sense, um, support each other because it's all about the, the importance of love. It's all about the importance of recognizing diversity in creation, you know, the fact we are all different. But we have got it badly wrong in places in religion, and that has caused a lot of pain. And then you hear that in comments like the one you've just um, read out. I suppose what I'd appeal for people to remember is that religion isn't always the same as God. You know, what is being created by man and in all our, and it is normally man rather than women, um, is, is often very fallible. But actually, at the core of most faith is a message of love. And that's what we need to, to hold on to. OK, fantastic. Just picking up on something you said about um, LGBT, it's not one against the other. A lot of LGBTQ plus people have faith. One of our listeners, Aaron, on Facebook says, I just want to clarify that religious freedom is a protected human right, Article 9, Jane, you referred to this earlier, and that many people in the LGBTQ plus community will be people of faith. I say this because sometimes these conversations have a tendency to depict LGBTQ plus folks and religious folks as a complete separate species whereas for some of us this is a live ongoing and sometimes difficult conversation what do you think benji you're nodding i couldn't i couldn't agree more and just to um you know plus one on that point we talk a lot um 
about, or at least we should be talking more about anyway, how um, within the LGBTQIA plus community, we don't talk enough about um, race and how that intersects and how a lot of people within the community who are of color do not feel seen. Um, and I can relate to that speaking as, you know, a black individual. And so therefore I would, I would say that how we have an us and them approach to religion, um, you know, and how that's negative, that also relates to all other identities. So we really need to be really careful when we consider, you know, our group as being homogenous because not all the same. Absolutely. Um, Laura, just picking up on something else that Joan said, she admitted we have got it badly wrong sometimes. Do you think it maybe would help um, the relationship if if religious groups did more to make amends with the LGBTQ people that they've persecuted in the past? Um, I think that's hard for me to say as someone that doesn't have a religion or a religious background because I can't imagine what it would be like to be reached out to by that group because they don't mean anything in particular to me. But I can imagine that for people who are LGBTQ+, who are religious and who, you know, consider themselves queer or identify as queer, um, that could be, like, really valuable, really helpful. I have to say, for me, um, for me, it absolutely would be. For me, it absolutely would be. Um, when I get married in a humanist ceremony at the end of this year, I'm always talking about getting married. I finally got a man and I'm getting married. My mum is still a practising Catholic. I think she would like there to be an element of that at the ceremony in the way that my boyfriend is Jewish and there will be certain elements of his Jewish culture rather than faith present. I have said I don't want any Catholicism there and um, that's because the associations are still very um, strong in my mind with what I was told that I was wrong and actually if what do you think, Jane? You've met the Pope, as you told us. Do you think if there was more making amends, um, this would help heal the wounds? Yes, I do. And firstly, congratulations on getting married. And that's, <laughs> I'm really sorry myself to hear of the pain it's caused you. And the very first thing I did, I suppose, when I stepped into the arena of trying to campaign in this area was to write to the Archbishops of Canterbury and York and, and ask for an apology to the LGBT community. And in fact, it was a letter that over 100 senior Anglicans signed with me. And we had an apology from all the primates in the Anglican Communion, i.e. all the archbishops. Now, that was a good start but it's only words and what we need is action you know what we need is things to follow through but until I don't think we can look at, at reconciliation we can't looking look at moving on until we've had a recognition of the pain and the trauma and the harm that's being caused and that requires heartfelt apology and words are important but actions are really what's needed so let's have a change of heart and it is happening I think that's the important thing and and the great news is that there are an increasing number of allies you know senior church leaders and faith leaders who want to speak up for the LGBT community and who often are from the LGBT community as you are so yeah, thank well, you uh, that's brilliant right I want to slide I want to move on to another element that I find fascinating so it, we're acting as if some people act as if it is hard and fast that if you are Christian it says that being the Bible says that being gay is wrong what I actually find fascinating is the conflict in different people's different religious beliefs from the same religion for example some people believe that the passages of the Bible that specifically state that same sex 
sex attraction of activity is wrong, whereas other people believe these are overridden by the teaching to love your neighbour or that everyone is created in God's image. Um, so, Benji, you were saying it's not so black and white, it's not so hard and fast anyway. This introduces another grey area, doesn't it? It definitely does. Um, and we have a saying in my culture that sometimes you just need to chew the meat and leave the bones. And I, I relate to that in terms of religion and faith. I was raised Catholic as well. And whilst I would say that I'm not a practicing Catholic and there's a lot that I, I don't relate to, I still keep elements of it that I'm, I live my life by and are still very important to me. And to me, that's taking what I need and leaving what, what I don't need. That's that's fascinating. I love that saying. I'm going to keep that. I need to write that down You're so I welcome. don't forget it. Um, Laura, and I also want to put this question to Jane as we come towards the end of this discussion. Is one of the problems here that with religion, we're dealing with the concept of absolute truth. And this doesn't really leave leave much room um, for theoretically for different opinions and that if you believe yourself to be in a position of absolute truth surely it's your duty to spread the word and share it and put people right if they're wrong that's uh, is that partly why we get into so much disagreement with religion I mean yeah I mean it's got to be a part of it I uh, that is definitely something I've found when I have engaged with a particular a religious community and um, I have found myself having conversations with people where uh, I know fundamentally at the end of the day they think that what I am doing is wrong and who I am is wrong and that's a very difficult thing uh, to get past but I know that it is entirely possible on all sides you know queer people religious people queer religious people to find a middle ground it doesn't have to be absolute and as you were saying it depends what the absolute is if it's if you find you know that your religion at the basis of it i think is love or acceptance then there is definitely that common ground exists anyway Fantastic. Right, Jane, I need your help wrapping this up. What do you think? Is there ever any hope of solving this problem? Is it destined to go on and on and on with regular flare-ups? Or do you think we can find a way through? I do believe, because that's what my faith tells me, that there is a way through. I think you'll find that, um, for instance, within the Christian faith, theologians are really... Uh, 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 um, splits over the interpretations of those texts. They recognise they've been poorly translated. The context hasn't been listened. So there's good theological debate. And the Church of England's just produced a huge tome on, on, on why these texts have perhaps should be um, uh, translated differently. But ultimately, you know, there's a great saying by Martin Luther King, and I'll probably misquote it, but it's the arc of history bends towards justice. So we look at how we treat women. We look at how we treat those from from different minority ethnic backgrounds. We look at how we treat uh, even the view that the world is no longer flat. You know, we've recognised that things were wrong, which we thought were in scripture. And we've now moved forward because that's the way that justice has taken us. And how we treat LGBT people is part of that movement. And I know because I believe that love will prevail, that we will get there. Brilliant. Thank you very much for that. I'm feeling very positive on that note. Thank you very much for joining us. You're listening to the Virgin Radio Pridecast. Now we're going to have a little pause for a chat with Benji. 
So tell us, waving your hands, you describe your TikTok page as a safe inclusion and well-being learning space, and you've racked up, I think it's 170,000 followers. Why did you think this creating this kind of space, TikTok, was the right forum for it? I didn't. If I'm going to be truly honest with you, I I didn't. It was it was if it, it was by accident, slightly on purpose. So basically, um, I my sister has been a travel content creator for for years, um, and she's very successful on the platform. Um, and basically, I so I quit my job last year. I worked in advertising during the pandemic, and I had a bit of a a quarter life crisis. <laughs> We've all had um, one of those. Yes, yes, I'm sure everyone can relate. Um, and I decided I was doing a lot of inclusion work um, outside of my job, and then I decided that you know I wanted to pursue it, um, you know, as as part of my job. So I quit my job. Um, I went back to university, so I'm doing a HR master still um, at Brunel, which I'm loving. And basically, all those conversations, all the great work that I was having, kind of stalled due to pandemic, and also because I left my job. And so I wanted a place where I could kind of you know keep that conversation going. Um, and I didn't want to do what, didn't want to do on Instagram because all my friends are there and it was a bit like mm, I'm shy so I was like oh let me use TikTok my sister uses TikTok and she looks like she has a good time and then it kind of went from there and you've said that your overall theme is inclusion inclusivity mm-hmm. uh, but you do cover a very wide range of topics how do you decide um, what what topics you're going to cover so they're very much led by uh, my audience. So um, the topics that I, I, I cover are a lot of questions that, that I get. Um, and for me, I'm very willing to touch on anything that is related to my, my lived experience or that I feel like is very important for me to speak up on as, as an ally. But I'm very, very careful to not randomly speak about a topic that I necessarily I'm not informed about or I cannot directly relate back to my experience because you know that's when you get into problematic territory and what about earlier we were calling out outrage mongering Mm. um that is um seen quite widely as a way to rack up your impressions on social media I don't know whether it's not it works differently with TikTok obviously your page is very successful but you don't um, you don't go into um, intentionally offending or shocking or What's your policy on this? If anything's going to be contentious, do you just avoid it? No. So I truly believe that me existing loudly as as I as um, the person that I am is is inherently political. It's always going to be controversial, and there are so many topics that I talk about on my page which seem very obvious to me that have people really enraged. Um, simple things like why we should use people's pronouns. Um, and people are like, oh my gosh. And it gets like hundreds of thousands of views. Um, and the reason to answer your question in terms of outrage mongering and getting views and things like that, I think for me, the difference is that my intention is just to is to educate um, and to spread um, you know, helpful tools and resources for people to be more inclusive. It's not to um, grow my following. And so therefore, my content is very much led by what I think will be useful for my audience and not necessarily what's going to rack up views and likes. 
Okay, we're going to be talking about education in a minute with our next guest. But can I just ask you about your style? Because that's one mm. of the things that makes your videos so unique. You speak directly to the camera in a personal and kind yet firm way. Is this something you worked on? Or was that just the way things came out when you started posting your first videos? Yeah, it's it's kind of become my signature style to be to be kind but firm and and people have called my videos like approachable and I've actually a lot of people said that I should do kids TV <laughs> uh, because they showed my videos to, to their their younger siblings and their kids and stuff like that and I totally get it because I, I'm I'm quite softly spoken and I speak with a smile and I wear flowery shirts and it's all very you know yeah, Sesame Street um, but that's just authentically me and I'm very very also so clear to correct people when they say that I my videos are the, the best way to talk about these topics it's not the best way it's just my way and marginalized communities have a right to be angry about you know things that affect them and to and to and we should we shouldn't invalidate their anger by asking them to be palatable in how they speak I'm palatable I guess just because I'm being authentically me but if I was to you know be on TikTok you know shouting about racism or homophobia that would also be valid but interestingly, um, there isn't any discernible anger in your videos and the smile is almost disarming. The smile is almost your most um, important weapon as an educator. Um, you mentioned kids TV, people saying to you, you should be on kids TV, which I agree with. What is next? Do you want to stay on TikTok? Are you happy there? Or do you have plans to, or um, ambitions to expand your activities into other areas? I, the beauty of TikTok is that the reach is huge and I'm reaching so many people and so there are so many great opportunities that are coming from it. Um, for example, I quit my job because I wanted to work in inclusion and the idea is that I'd hopefully when I graduated I could, you know, become, you know, HR assistant with like a DNI specialism or maybe I could become a DNI consultant. And then like I got a job as the air consultant like a month and a half ago and that was literally basically off of my TikTok page. Um TikTok's the way myself forward. out there. It's the new LinkedIn, everybody. Um, <laughs> not just from my, from that. It was through connections, but I think having that page has helped me demonstrate that I am capable to talk about and explain these topics in an accessible and informative and impactful way. So I say that to say that I've, I'm so excited about what's to come next. I don't have any kind of one particular goal that I'm going for now. The goal was a DNI consultant consultancy thing and I'm really doing that so who knows TV a podcast a radio show I could be sitting on that side of the desk <laughs> who knows Virgin Radio hit me up <laughs> <laughs> whatever you end up doing I'm looking forward to it although I hope you don't take my job thank you very much Benji thank you The Sunday Roast with Matt Kane. Virgin Radio Pride my delightful panel Laura Kay and Benji Cousy are still with me and now we're going to be talking about the question is whose responsibility is it to educate mainstream society about our community so although as a community we're much closer to achieving equal rights in this country at least in many respects we're still lagging behind when it comes to attitudes most people would agree that one of the most effective ways to improve attitudes is through education but whose responsibility is this do we as a community bear the responsibility of educating mainstream society on issues that affect us 
or should it fall to individuals to educate themselves? I am thrilled that we're joined by Peter Tatchell. If anybody doesn't know, he is a human rights campaigner who's devoted his entire life to speaking out against injustice and discrimination. Not exclusively, but in particular in relation to the LGBTQ plus community. He's just been the subject of a major new Netflix documentary, Hating Peter Tatchell, which documents his 54 years of campaigning. It was executive produced by Elton John and David Furnish. I've seen it. I've been shouting about it on social media. It's brilliant. Peter, thank you for joining us. Very glad to be with you. Now, as I say, I've seen your brilliant documentary. It profiles your activism right from the start of your career. Much of it has been direct action, confrontational and uncompromising. So my question is to you, has your desire to outrage or shock people into changing their attitudes or behaviour, has that for you always come before any desire to educate? Well, of course, my preferred option always is to educate and persuade. You know, I'd love to sit down with government ministers over a cup of tea and persuade them that LGBT plus rights are morally right and necessary. But sadly, in our long history, for many, many decades, people in power would not listen. They would not meet us. They would not change. So modelled on the suffragettes, and the black civil rights movement in America. I've been involved in direct action campaigns for LGBT plus rights for over 50 years. And I can tell you that many of those campaigns have succeeded where lobbying had failed. So it's it, it just, it just par for the course. When you're a marginalized community, sometimes you have to be provocative and confrontational to get noticed and to force people in power to change. All right, so when you were doing things like staging your citizen's arrest of Robert Mugabe or disrupting the Archbishop of Canterbury's Easter sermon, there wasn't specifically an educational element to these, or not explicitly to these activities, but were you hoping that people who witnessed them would be shocked enough to go away, would be shocked into action to go away and educate themselves? Well, first let me say that the interruption of the Easter Sunday sermon by the Archbishop of Canterbury in Canterbury Cathedral in 1998 was a last desperate resort. We had tried to meet with the Archbishop for eight years. He wouldn't meet us in outrage, and he wouldn't even meet the lesbian and gay Christian movement, many of whose members belong to his own Church of England. So faced with that intransigence, and the fact that he was openly saying that the criminal law, the law of the land, should discriminate against us. He was saying we were not entitled to equal treatment. He was lobbying members of parliament to vote against equality. We had to challenge and confront him. And indeed, the upshot was that, first of all, he dramatically reduced his lobbying against gay equality. He met with the lesbian and gay Christian movement for the first time. And indeed, other bishops in the church were so shocked, they claimed they didn't realize he was against legal equality, that they spoke out as Christian bishops of the Church of England to say that they supported equal rights. So that was a triple win. Direct action really did get a result. 
So, right, and th those people then went away and educated themselves, absolutely. But with this issue of responsibility, so your motivation for taking this kind of direct action, do you think it's your responsibility as a member of our community and the wider community in general, is it our responsibility to educate our adversaries? Well, of course, all the direct action protests I've been involved in have not merely sought to challenge people abusing our community, but also to educate people. You know, we have used direct action as a way of getting news coverage. And through that news coverage, raising public awareness about the scale of homophobic, biphobic and transphobic discrimination. And then off the back of that, many of us have done radio phone-in programs, TV debates, where we had a chance to explain why LGBT plus rights is consistent with human rights and why governments, police and churches should change. So off the back of the direct action, there has been an education process and it's been very, very, very effective. We know from the research and polls that have been taken that in the wake of many of the protests that I and others have done, public attitudes have begun to shift in favour of LGBT plus rights. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Right. I want to bring in our panel. So Benji, you have made, so Benji um, works on TikTok and he has made a video specifically about this topic, why you shouldn't ask members of societally marginalised groups to educate you. Um, can you tell us, so we're talking about this kind of the relationship between activism, education, when they overlap, when they're separate. So what's the thrust of the video and um, can you tell us the thinking behind it? So the thrust of the, the sort of that video you're referencing is that I know that a lot of our community um, do get asked a lot to educate others. Um, and a lot of the time, the questions that are being asked are simple things, just in terms of, you know, why you should use pronouns or why you shouldn't say or do certain things. And the thing is, it can be very draining for people in our community to be con constantly on this pedestal doing lectures to people when you just wanna you know, have a drink at a bar or you're just having a walk in the park. And the point of that video was basically to tell people that I am a member of, the, of, a, of a certain community and on this page, I educate because I want to, right? But you shouldn't assume that everyone you meet who is like me has a duty to educate you. Um, completely. Um, it's interesting, though, isn't it? Because you've got your videos as a resource, mm -hmm. but then, actually, if we do take those opportunities to educate in real life, they can sometimes have a really big impact. Even though I totally take what you're saying about it can be draining to have to do it all the time and it can be emotionally triggering, mm -hmm. it can be very effective, little activism, moments of activism and educating people in, you know, in amongst everyday life but the thing is that there are people who are doing that you know actively doing that if, because they want to like like me i i do it on tiktok so i my like my sister and my friends always say that my pages are helpful because instead of explaining something they'll be like oh i'll watch this video send you a link and, and educate yourself and so i think yes it can be really impactful if we all did a little bit of activism but I think the onus should be on others to do the work themselves and educate themselves. We don't all have to be activists. 
All right, so Laura, would you say it's all about context? For example, if you're at a dinner party and someone says something prejudiced and you can give them what Caramel Brown on Queer Eye calls a teachable moment, (laughs) (laughs) is there something that you would do? Um, Personally, yes, I would. If someone says something at dinner party that I disagree with and that I have knowledge about that I could share then yes I will say something I, I probably won't try and like have an argument with someone but I certainly would like share what I know and correct them if they've said something that I think is offensive or wrong um, but the I I don't have to like I think that's key in that I, I personally would choose to I wouldn't ch- judge somebody that chose not to if it wasn't the right thing for them to do in that moment all right so Peter talking about the context um, so in that context, we describe obviously the teachable moment would um, hit the target. We were hypothesising. But what do we do when we're confronted with raging, unfettered, unfiltered prejudice or prejudice that threatens our safety? At that point, presumably the teachable moment has passed. Is that when we have to resort to more confrontational um, direct action as a form of self-defence? Well, I think we know that nobody gets their rights handed to them. Rights come as a result of struggle, long struggle, not just for LGBT plus people, but for women, black and ethnic minority people, and many, many others. It's because people have been prepared to stand up and say enough is enough, that things have begun to change. So we can all be witnesses for LGBT plus rights in our own lives. We can all, as Laura said, challenge prejudice when we hear it. Um, And I think that's a a, a big responsibility. Not everybody can do it. And of course, in situations where there is aggression thrown at us, you know, we have to make a choice about our safety. And I've tended to make the choice, regardless of the threat, I I, I go for it. But not everybody's in that position. Um, I think we all have to make the assessment about what is safe to do. Um, And I think, you know, when I look back at sort of the... um, uh, when I was beaten unconscious by President Robert Mugabe's bodyguards in, in Brussels, I never wanted that to happen, but I knew it was risky. And I was prepared to take that risk to stand in solidarity at the request of human rights defenders inside Zimbabwe who told me, who asked me to do something to help draw public attention to Mugabe's abuses. And you know, the, the irony is that it was sort of the best thing that could have happened, even though it's left me with some brain and eye damage, because people concluded if President Mugabe is prepared to beat up a peaceful protester in the heart of a European capital city, Brussels, in broad daylight in front of the world's media, just imagine what he's doing to his own people when no one is watching. So it really effectively exposed the tyranny of that regime at a time back in 2001 when there was not much coverage about the human rights abuses in Zimbabwe. So actually, um, when you the way you just put it, when people watching that think, if he's capable of doing that, just imagine what he's doing in his country, the next logical step in that thought process should be, I'm going to find out what he's doing in that country. In which case, what you're effectively saying is that activism and education are two strands of the same activity for me they are and in the wake of that protest it got worldwide media coverage on tv radio and press Um, and a lot of those reports 
did, because of my actions, uh, start reporting about the torture, detention without trial, and even judicial executions, or extrajudicial executions taking place in Zimbabwe. And then I followed up by sending out through all my contacts and social media information about what was happening on the ground in Zimbabwe. So it was a great consciousness raising exercise that did inform and educate. So I'm just going to bring in a couple of listener comments. Adrian, Adrian on Facebook says, I know it's fashionable to say it's not my job to help you understand me, but I think education is a joint endeavour between communities. Each has an individual role and responsibility and each can inspire the other. Together they can achieve wonders. Claire on Twitter says, it's not a responsibility as such, but if it helps, why not do it? Benji, if it helps, why not do it? Whoever's responsibility it is to educate people, surely we're the ones with the most to gain from the education. So if we're the most invested, shouldn't we engage? The thing is, to say that I have the most to gain, so therefore it's therefore more my responsibility or more my duty, it, it inherently marginalises, you know. my The whole objective is to really create an environment where everyone has, you know, the same valid experience. And so therefore, I get the sentiment, and you know, and like as I mentioned before, you know, if you can educate, then do so. But I'm, I'm really against the idea that, you know, it's our duty to or that we all have to in order to, you know, get a better treatment or be, um, have a better, more improved experience in society. Laura, um, when we were talking about Benji's videos, he meant Benji's specific video on this subject. Um, I said that um, he says in the video that it can be emotionally draining, upsetting, triggering. Mm. Have you ever been in a position where you've been thrust onto the front line of activism, a little flash of it in daily life, and you've not wanted to be there? And, you know, you've, you've thought, why am I having to go through this? Um... I think um yes in my in my daily life but to give a to give a very small uh example I have been doing press recently and the first time I ever went on live radio I got asked um what why do people make such a fuss about homophobia and isn't it isn't it over I'm assuming this came from a person who is I assume a straight, outside, a straight yeah. person. Yeah, I I didn't ask about their gender identity or sexuality. Uh, I assume straight from the question, um, and it threw me so much. I was there to talk about my book, and um, I'm not there to talk about whether homophobia was over. And um, I think so. When we're talking about being asked to educate people or speak to another group, like one of those comments was about, isn't it a two-way conversation and we can learn from each other? Yeah, there are some groups of people that I want to learn from. There's all kinds of communities that I want to learn from, but there are there's a one big community that I have no interest in. I I if I'm educating like straight white cis people, I I live in that society. They don't have anything to educate me, you know. I know. With, I know. So, Although, yeah. funnily enough, actually, Benji's got something I want to say, but um, um, I can remember somebody saying that to me. Homophobia is not a thing anymore. And, and this was a straight person, a friend, and being very um, committed to this idea 
on the grounds that he wasn't homophobic and he'd never seen any and he didn't hang around with homophobes. Um, Benji, you're shaking your head. In this instance, I was worked up by that incident, but I tried to give him, as Karamo says, a teachable moment. What would you have done in this in this situation? What was it you wanted to say? Oh, I just wanted to say, you know, in that moment, what I would have done is I would have said, please take a moment to consider experiences and perspectives that are outside of your own and do some research and knowledge and let's have a conversation, you know, in a week's time and see where we're at in a, in a really kind way. That's what I would say. Um, and the thing is, is that the reason why I'd say go away and do it, again, I'm not necessarily going to give you that teachable moment, is because to act like we are all resources is incredibly objectifying. I am... I am all of these different identities. They all exist within me. But fundamentally, I am Benji, you know? And I love Beyonce and fashion and style. And I want to talk about a range of topics. And I don't always want to be a resource to educate others. I do that on my TikTok page as a job. Um, I don't need to do that in my spare time. Okay, so Peter, Benji says it can be very objectifying to be a resource, to feel like you are reduced to being a resource to educate others. You have dedicated your whole life to kind of being a resource to improve things for others. Have you, Are there any points when you have felt objectified by having to call out injustice all the time has it taken its toll on you in the way that we've just been discussing i wouldn't say that i feel objectified but i've certainly often felt very very exhausted um you know i get between one and two thousand messages and requests every single day that's like seven to fourteen thousand a week it's driving me almost bonkers trying to keep up and um that is very very stressful and of course, a lot of them are hate messages and death threats as well. You know, I've had over 300 violent attacks upon my person. Um, I've had more than 50 attacks upon my flat, including bricks and bottles through the windows, um, two arson attempts, and even a bullet through my letterbox. Um, life has been tough on the front line, challenging homophobes, racists, and other bigots. But I choose it. Oh. I've decided I want to do something. I'm only one person, I can't do a lot, but I do my bit, as do many thousands of other people. And it's our collective effort that makes the change. So going back to the original premises of this whole discussion, is it a duty? I think at some level it is, because if you're benefiting from the work of others, but not contributing, if your life is being made better, and you're not helping to push it forward, then that's a bit selfish. Now, I'm not saying that everybody has to do it, I'm not saying you know there should be any compulsion, but I do think that looking at other struggles, for example, the black civil rights movement in America, you know, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, Huey Newton, they all said, black people have to stand up for their rights and it's your personal responsibility. They responsibilized African-Americans to take the fight for freedom uh, to Congress, to police departments and so on. Now, that is just one approach. I'm not saying that you know, that's the only approach, but I think it has something, some merit to it. When I go back to the early 1970s, when I was involved in the Gay Liberation Front in London, 
hardly any gay people were out in those days. Most LGBTs were in the closet. But, you know, a handful of us, you know, well, a few hundred of us kept pushing the envelope. You know, we challenged the church, the media, the government, the police, and we did win changes. And other people benefited from that. And I think it's a bit hard for us to be held you know, responsible that we were the ones who had to do it when there could have been many other people who could have taken the same gestures. Now, some people, of course, are in difficult circumstances. Maybe if you live in a very orthodox religious family, it's more difficult to be out and open. I accept that. But I do think that it is our collective effort, our cumulative collective effort, that has brought about the changes we have won. And the more people who can be involved and contribute, the faster and further we will go. Okay, that's a really important point. I need to wrap up soon, but I want to put this to our panellists. Benji, if someone says to you, I'm not an activist, being visibly, openly queer and out is enough, do you feel that they are letting the side down? No, I don't think they're letting the side down. But what I would say is that they should at least have zero tolerance. So you can not be an educator. You can say, it's not my duty to educate. I'm not a resource. However, I do not tolerate a bigotry and I will not stand for it. I will call it out. I will make sure I don't contribute financially to it. You know, there's, there's things you can do that are passive that, that also help. It's not always having to be on, you know, to educate and do those things. But Laura, if we all, as a, as a community, every member of our community stands to benefit, should every member of our community not make an effort? No, because every member of our community is not equal. So, like, for some people, it's much easier to stand up than others for so many reasons that I, I couldn't even go into it. And so that's why it's important. Like, if you are able to and you want to, then absolutely be the activist, make that change. But if you're not able to, that doesn't make you a lesser member of the community by any means. Okay, right, we need to wrap up. Peter, before you go, I want to say a massive thanks for taking part. You're amazing. But you wanted to tell us, do a bit of education. Tell us about Reclaim Pride, which is coming up on Saturday the 24th of July. Well, as you know, Pride in London has been postponed. And there's been lots of concerns about the way Pride in London was run, the allegations of racism, of not listening to the community. So Reclaim Pride is happening on Saturday the 24th of July, starting at 1pm in Parliament Square, SW1. We're going to put the politics and human rights back into Pride. This is a grassroots run Pride parade, which is going to amplify several key basic LGBT plus human rights demands, like reforming the Gender Recognition Act, like banning conversion therapy, like securing a safe haven for LGBT plus refugees fleeing persecution, and like solidarity with Black Lives Matter. Um, we want people to spread the word. We haven't got a budget. We haven't got any funding. We need word of mouth, people to spread the word, get your organization to come along, Ask them if they're coming. If they're not, try and persuade them to come. Tell your friends. Put the message out on social media. If you go to my Twitter, at Peter Tatchell, or my Facebook page, Peter Tatchell, or the Peter Tatchell Foundation website, you'll see information. Um, it's going to be a fabulous day. It's going to basically reclaim pride for the community. We are calling it a People's March for LGBT plus liberation. 
And I think it's going to show that the Pride in London model is not the only model on the table. And in fact, it's a very expensive one, a dysfunctional one, and one that does not reflect the community's needs to fight for our ongoing rights. So please, please spread the word. It's going to be like the original Pride March. It's going to follow almost the same route. We're going up Whitehall to shout out at Boris Johnson at Downing Street to tell him to stop stalling on LGBT plus rights. Then we're going further up Whitehall to Felger Square. We're going to shout out at the Uganda High Commission to express our solidarity with Ugandan LGBTI people. And then we're going to follow the, the old pride route of 1972 from Trafalgar Square to Hyde Park, where we're going to have a gigantic open air queer picnic. So bring your own food, drink and music. It is going to be fabulous. Brilliant. Thank you very much. And thank you for joining us. Now, right, as of tomorrow, most COVID restrictions in England are going to be lifting. Not all of them. In some cities, you'll still be required to wear a mask on public transport in some supermarkets. And there are big variations in the policies of the different nations within the UK. Some people have said it's all a bit confusing. But the general gist of it is that we're all going to start being a lot freer as of tomorrow. So, Laura and Benji, what do you think about this? What are you most looking forward to? I am most looking forward to being in... I haven't. It's been so long since I've gone dancing, and I love to dance. And the whole table thing—I'm restricted, oh, no, you know. No, I'm, yeah. I'm talented on the dance floor. People need to see it. They're missing out on it. So yeah, <laughs> dancing. <laughs> it's true, isn't it? Do you think, Laura, that we've been allowed to go back to bars and things, but all of us? plonked at a table and stuck at the table and as soon as you step up you've got to put your mask on and I know when I don't want to moan when actually the point is protecting ourselves from spreading this deadly pandemic but it's a bit of a buzzkill isn't it uh yeah massively (laughs) I'm looking forward to exactly the same thing actually being able to move around maybe like go and speak to someone that I didn't come in the door with um without being told to go and sit down yeah I'm I am really excited do you think we will be able to kind of embrace that freedom that idea of moving around freely or are we still going to be constrained by this fear that has taken root in us now yeah, definitely, 100%. And I know people, I think people who have social anxiety anyway, who it's just wrapped up. And I think for a long time, um, we're going to need to be sensitive that people, not everyone is going to want to go straight back full power to how it was before. Yeah. All right, so you mentioned going on the dance floor. Mm-hmm. Laura mentioned standing up from the table. This is like <laughs> such basic things we're excited about, isn't it? <laughs> but I was going to say, the government, when they were announcing at some conference the other day, talking about this, the example they used was, you will be able to stand an order at the bar. And um, no, can I can I intuit from your facial expression, Laura, that that's not something you're looking forward to? I'm not bothered about that. <laughs> I would be happy, and I also think that a lot of people who work in the service industry must be happier with the table service. Mm. Like you must have to deal with so much less like drunken idiots and like you know all of that like bad behaviour that happens at a bar. And mm. I so I just think maybe keep it. 
I have to say it's easier for me because I'm tall and I've got a loud mouth so I can usually get attention at a bar but I know a lot of people who stand at bars for ages waiting to be served why is that something that the Prime Minister would think we'd want to look forward to Benji? Uh, out of touch out of touch <laughs> although what I would say is that uh, those articles that came out of the old people who go to the local pub and they couldn't order because they didn't have a smartphone oh, no. I'm tearing up thinking about it like give that old man a pint please <laughs> <laughs> so yeah I often think about um, elderly people. I often think that, you know, when everything, when they stopped taking cash on London buses and um, Mm. all these things, it's like, they must feel like my nana is 99 Mm. and um, doesn't have a smartphone and her daughters do most things for her. But I think, you know, those people, um, they must be so bewildered by what's happened before COVID, what's happened in the world, this march towards everything on smartphones and QR codes and this, that and the other. Yeah, no, 100%. And not to generalise, you know, my grandma loves a good, you know, FaceTime moment. Um, She's never looking at in the camera, but it's on. (laughs) And we're communicating. Yeah. But I think people who are genuinely, you know, not not tech savvy um, or don't have means to, you know, you know, buy certain things, um, certain tech do feel a bit excluded. Yeah. And we've all mentioned just then social anxiety. Mm. Does either of you two, do you, Laura, do you feel any nervousness about um, getting back out there? Um, No, I don't anymore. I'm just excited. I think when we came out of the first lockdown, actually, and then the second lockdown, there was just a couple of moments, you know, when you were in a room with um, six people indoors or however many people outdoors or whatever it was that the rules were, and where you just had a moment of being like, I'm only used to talking to one person, and it's an overwhelming feeling. So I think... Yeah, I think it's going to have to be like a slow burn to get back to like what it was before. And is there anything that you started doing during the lockdowns and the pandemic that you're that you didn't do before that you're going to carry on doing? Um, yeah, I've, it's quite lame, but it's a um, I, every single day I write down in a journal that three things that I was really grateful for that day, which I started doing at like an extremely low point. Uh, I think it was in lockdown too, and um, I'm going to keep that up forever because it's just so good. And actually, the things that I am grateful for now are pretty much the same things I was grateful for in lockdown. So it's like. A perspective shifter. That's interesting, but it's also interesting that British culture is such that before you said that, you had to preface it with, it's a bit lame, but... And it's not remotely lame. That's actually an amazing thing. What do you think, Benji? Yeah, I, I think that's that's incredible. And I actually did start a gratitude journal in lockdown. Yes, but I only lasted like a week or two. Um, <laughs> but I think I think it's really, it's really important. And, you know, I think... Whilst there has been so many awful things that have come out of, of lockdown and stuff, there are so many positive things. You know, I think accessibility is so important. I think we should not let that go. Any event, especially if it's a work event, that, you know, can have be virtual or have a virtual element to it, should still have that so everyone can access and partake equally. And what about the real physical gay queer scene? Um, we discussed this on a previous show. I talked about how I'd learned to um, appreciate it again, having had it taken away from me. Are you two, you've talked about Benji wanting to go out dancing. Is that specifically in a gay bar in your fantasy? Um, I dance wherever there is music <laughs> and a floor or a table or a countertop, I don't mind. Um, but yeah, no, I'm, I'm excited, definitely. And, you know... Um, a lot of these venues were suffering before the pandemic and stuff and so the ones that are still have survived we definitely need to go and support 
and you're nodding, Laura. Are you going to be going out to support? I nearly said your local lesbian bar. There's so few of them left. There aren't any lesbian bars to support, but I will definitely be going out and supporting queer nightlife, which is something that I wasn't doing enough before and didn't appreciate enough. I'd got so settled in my life thinking, oh, it'll always be there, you know? And like, I'd, I'd think of myself as someone that went out all the time. And when I thought about it, I was like, I haven't been enough. I haven't supported them enough. So I'm excited to get back. Here, here, my sentiments exactly. Right, that's about it for this week. Thanks very much to my guests, Laura Kay and Benji Cousy, Jane Ozan and Peter Tatchell. I'll be back with a brand new panel and some brand new discussions at the same time next week. Drop me a line if you've enjoyed the show, if you want to share an experience or want to have your say. If you're looking for us on social media, we're on at Virgin Radio UK and I'm on at Matt Writer. Or you can email us on pride at virginradio.co.uk. See you at the same time next Sunday. <laughs>